Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the Drop-In CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to enhance the human element and increase the results they achieve. This podcast is about bringing you conversations with expert guests who have achieved their greatest results built on a strong foundation of purpose, values, and elevating people. If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, I'm Deb Cobiello, founder of the Drop-In CEO brand, and I am grateful you've joined us on another episode of the podcast where I get to speak to amazing leaders week after week and share their insights with you and perhaps inspire you. And if you love this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, so we can continue to bring you great programming. And thank you so much for all the downloads. They really, really help us get the great word out. And just know I am here to help support the C-suite leaders of today and tomorrow to navigate their challenges with confidence. And today I am so, so excited for this amazing guest, Grant Anderson. Grant co-founded Paragon Space Development Corporation in 1993 and has held various positions from VP of Engineering, Treasurer, CFO, Vice President of Operations, COO and Director of Manufacturing. He's had many positions and has done such amazing work. And he is also a sought-after speaker, recognized as a leader in the life support in extreme environments field. He has led the systems and conceptual design of multiple spacecraft under contract things to Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Sierra Nevada, SpaceX, NASA, Inspirational Mars Foundation, and others. And prior to that, Mr. Anderson Grant, my friend, was the design lead at Lockheed Martin for the International Space Station Solar Array Panels. He holds several degrees from Stanford University and also has a passion for excellence. It drives him to support the next generation of engineers and leaders through participation in educational work outside of Paragon. And also amongst all of that in his spare time, he is an avid bicyclist and is married and has three children. Grant, it is my pleasure to welcome you onto the show. Thank you very much, Deb. I'm really happy to be here. So the reason why I'm so excited, and this is the beauty of networking, is I looked on LinkedIn, I looked out into my network for leaders of companies from operations, engineering, manufacturing, who have led a life of service, not only through the technical work, but also in elevating the capability of others. And when Grant and I spoke, I said, oh, I have to have you on the show, because not only does he strive to build the future of tomorrow in space, but he also builds those leaders. So I am so excited, Grant, for you to share on our show a bit about yourself personally your career journey, and the impactful work that you're doing now. Thanks. Probably should start with my childhood, not because I want to go back that far, but because it really has an effect on how I look at things. I had a very unique childhood. My father was a diplomat. I moved around a lot. 13 of my first 18 years were overseas in Europe. My last three years of high school were in three different countries, let alone three different high schools. And so What that brings to the work I do is that I can see things from everybody's point of view, I think, because when you work with foreign nationals from all over the world going to international schools, you tend not to 
think about things just in the American way. You you get a very good cross section of everything. And I think that has well served me well. The other thing I should say is going to college, I recognize very soon that they say that classroom education is only 50% of the education. The other 50% is what you learn in the dorms and outside. And I worked my way through Stanford with, of course, some of my parents' money, but also having to hold down multiple jobs. And one of them was with a gentleman who actually happened to be the professor of entrepreneurial management at the Stanford School of Business. So he would come into the office in the morning where I worked in his real estate company and say, hey, I'm having Steve Jobs today for lunch. Would you like to go to lunch with Steve? And so I got to have lunch with Steve Jobs, Herb Keller, Ray Noyce, and a few others. And I'll admit, I was a fly in the wall, but it gave me a unique perspective and leadership and style of leadership and a little bit of, hey, these people are special, but I don't think so special that I can't do this too. So I think ultimately in the end, when I started Paragon, I, that gave me the confidence to, to start my own company. Oh, wow. You know, I was taken aback. I did not know those stories, but there's such depth in a couple points that I just want to bring forward for my listeners. Because again, when you're in the moment, you don't necessarily pick this up. It's so important that when we do go into business, we do have to hone our craft, be technically good, whether it's supply chain, finance, engineering, but you got to step back and not allow yourself to get so pigeonholed into the work. If you have an opportunity while you're in high school, college, in your work environment, travel the world and see the U.S. through other people's eyes and also see the rest of the people. It is so important. In fact, my children, all three of my children are in Europe right now, either working in the military or for school. And I will tell you, it is an enriching experience. So I appreciate that perspective as well as part of your background. But the other thing that you said <laughs> is so important. Sometimes we put people on a pedestal, leaders, that they're almost untouchable. And I think if we say that they're just part of humanity, that they just simply have a little bit more experience and maybe an alternative thought, take advantage of those opportunities to have lunch or don't check yourself out because you may be able to actually provide something for the conversation that they will really, really appreciate. So what was that like for you? I'm just curious. I mean, obviously, these are iconic figures. <laughs> I recognized it as a privilege at the time. It was, wow, you know, this wouldn't happen pretty much any place else. I would also say that no one ever told me to be quiet. And so if I could add something to the conversation at lunch, and also with my background and all of the diplomats who were in and out of my house and everything else, that I'm not shy about asking questions. But, you know, they hold saying that if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. There's no way when you're sitting at, at the table with people like that, that you can assume you're the smartest in the room. So it's good to sit back and listen, see how they answer questions, whether they start right away or if they hold back and they think about it and how they approach the question in the first place. And I think that's probably the most unique thing about those characters I met was that they definitely looked at the world just slightly differently than especially the person of 21, 22 years of age had the experience to look at. And and it was rather interesting. I probably learned as much from what they didn't say as what they did say. Oh, my God. <laughs> There's so much in that because we will always look at the obvious, what comes out of people's mouths. But silence, there is so much information in the silence and body language of what is not said. And it is our duty to be able to understand what's behind that. That's where the beauty happens. So I just want to understand something. 
you've got such a positive mindset. You said there was no silly question. You felt free to be able to ask questions. So it sounds like you've had just such a great career, a great mindset surrounded by just amazing people. And that curiosity that you have was fostered. But I believe when we talked also that you can't just do it alone. Like you said, you can't be the smartest person in the room. You need a lot of great people around you. But you also shared with me that a coach or a mentor was critical to that path forward. I'm curious, what was that pivotal moment that you realized you need one? Or did they show up at the right time when you actually were asking the right questions? Combination of the both. I mentioned this person whose company I worked for. By the way, his name was Captain Charles Bamfy, Chuck Bamfy. He was the former chief check pilot for the 747 fleet for Pan Am. So a very interesting person. And I probably do emulate him some. He would just say, hey, Grant, and give me these great little nuggets of advice. He was a very conversational. We would meet in his office about seven in the morning. And like I said, his real estate company, it would be clear on what objectives we were trying to get done for the day, the week or the month. But then he would just ask open-ended questions. So how's it going in school? Or you know, what have you run into lately? And so he invited me to sort of open up. The key to being a mentor and also being mentored is that you don't hold back. I know that with my board of directors, I always say, you know, it doesn't make any sense for me to have a board of directors with the experience mine does. And there's some very, very, very experienced people on my board to hold back on anything because the quality of the advice you give is commensurate with the details that they know so that they can address the real problem. So that's part of it, being open to a mentor. And there's no subject off the table. There's a little bit of, in this case, I've, I've had mentors that are every month or every two weeks and different teamings that I've been on. There's a little bit of, hey, what's immediate? You know, what's right in front of your face? What are your problems you have? But you have to sort of stand back and also say, what are the bigger issues? What are the big view problems that you're having? And then listen to the advice. And, you know, there's a Joel joke that a consultant is somebody who borrows your watch to tell you what time it is. I don't believe in that, but I believe that can be that way if you're not open and honest and receptive to what they're saying. You do have to filter it through your own experiences and what works for you. And if there's advice about team dynamics and stuff, you have to understand your team. So there's always a little bit of filtering you have to do. And I don't mean filtering and blocking things out, but making sure you understood how it applies to your situation. But it's a matter of being open and making sure that you're truthful with what you say to the person or else you won't get back what you need. So I'm quite curious. However, I do recall a few phrases or pieces of advice from some of my mentors that sometimes, ooh, it might hurt initially when they say it, like you said, they have to be direct, but upon consideration and then filtering to your current situation, they make sense and, oh, they can change the trajectory of your thinking or what you do. I'm wondering, what was some of that advice that had that impact on you? Probably the one that sticks out most is if you've tried something and it doesn't work and you keep trying it, then you're not learning. You're not in a learning environment. So you don't know what everybody else's situation is. You don't know how they're perceiving you. So reflecting back to them what you've heard. And then if you try something and it doesn't work, think about it. Think what might have worked. Even reach out to the person and say, you know, I tried this with you and it didn't work. What do I have to do to get through to you? It, it's amazing. And you can't say that in, of course, a confrontational way. 
we talked about this and I understand we didn't quite understand each other. How best can I explain it or what parts don't you understand or got different now that we've talked again later, you know, and you realize that we had a miscommunication, that there's an actual great saying this, the problem with communication is the illusion that it actually happened. And so making sure that that communication actually worked is really important on both sides of the mentorship and mentee type dynamics. Oh, I couldn't have said that any better. I so often talk about communication. It is one of, well, obviously I've learned how to communicate for a particular impact, but it's that, as you said in the earlier, those amazing iconic leaders listening intently before formulating a response and then reframing to make sure that they understand you and that they are understood. Communication is two-way, what you deliver and how it's consumed and even further, how is it internalized? And does it get the desired outcome? So yeah, do not step past go unless we make sure that communication is both two-way. Now, I am curious, one of the things that I'm thinking about is that you have had and will continue to have a very successful career in an amazing field, but also having been the co-founder of a company and various senior leadership positions. Did you ever imagine growing up, moving up in your career, that you would ascend to such a role? I had some indications. When I tell you, I didn't have in my plan that I would start a company. I sort of saw myself as getting involved with the company. I joined Lockheed right after college. Like you said, I was the chief design engineer for the solar rays there. And I got told by people really soon on, you know, you're on the fast track to being a vice president. So I got the idea that that something I was doing was right. As a matter of fact, a little funny anecdote, I got braces when I was like 23 or 24. I had an overbite condition. And my boss said, Grant, how do you expect to be a vice president in two years if you have braces? And I said, well, if it teaches me to keep my mouth shut, I'll probably get there twice as fast. But to be serious about it, there was some indications of that. In all the demographics you hear about, I'm not a real pick for this. I'm the last of five children. Usually the leaders are the first or second child. So that was against me, so to speak, if you've ever read any of the birth order books or anything like that. However, in starting my company, a lot of what I wanted to do was be different. In other words, I'd spend time in corporate America. I'd spent my time talking to some very interesting entrepreneurs, and I have not even named one-fifth of the ones I know for sure. And they all had different styles, but there were certain things that I had in mind for a company. You know, People first, you're not a number Nobody on their deathbed said, gee, I wish I spent more time at the office. That work-life balance that you get a lot of maybe lip service from, trying to actually embody that, understanding that everybody's in a different place in their life and how they can do things. Very much one of my goals of starting Paragon was there was a definite glass ceiling slash old boys network within the aerospace industry. I'm not here to imply that that's gone now. There is definitely still there. But There were certain elements of corporate America that made it harder for mostly women, usually caregivers, who stays home when the kid's sick, you know, who takes the kid to the doctor and stuff. It's usually the primary caregiver, usually the female in the relationship. And I just thought that was really unnecessary, that we've always had an extremely flexible work policy. When COVID happened, having people work from home really was not a big shift from us because we had a very liberal work from home policy very work from home, less so than maybe just a flexible work policy. You know, if somebody said, hey, my kids have a soccer game this afternoon, being able to flex the hours around, we're all salaried people, the vast majority of us. So it made sense to me to start a company like that. And Paragon has touchstones, 
that we try to live by and the orientation I give my new employees is don't be shy about this. In fact, one of the things I have to frankly lecture new employees on is get your vacations on the books. At the beginning of every year, I say, if you got a vacation plan, get it on the books. And by the way, if you move that, I'm going to be really mad because I had one senior person say very proudly that they'd moved their vacation, they canceled their vacation because NASA had moved a review into when they were going to be on vacation. I said, that's great. But the next time you do that, I'm going to fire you because for one thing, I know the person's spouse and I don't want that person to hate me. But the other one is, what does it say? It says to your delegates that you don't trust them. It says that you think that if you're gone for two weeks, that it's going to hurt the company. And all of those to me mean you're not really bringing up the next generation. You're not training your people below you. So it really says bad things to your subordinates. So that's the other thing is very often people say, well, I did delegate and they delegated up to their boss. I said, no, 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 you're delegating down because this is a chance to say, hey, I trust you, go do your thing. And if you think that person is going to ruin the company in two weeks that you're gone, we've got another problem and it has nothing to do with that person, you know, to some degree. Anyway, I, I kind of rambled there, but that's that was all in my mind when I was thinking of starting the company of just having that idea that work is an important part of your life. You're going to be spending 40 hours, maybe even more doing things, but it can't take over your life. It's a little bit what Stephen Covey had about first things first, get those big rocks in the jar before you fill it up with the trivial so that you don't miss out. Because like I said, nobody nobody ever on the deathbed said, I wish I spent more time at the office. And the regrets are usually family, health, and things like that. So make sure you can really keep those in balance. Just one other point. In the last two years, I've heard work-life integration, and that scares the hell out of me. I hope I can say that on your podcast. But work-life integration to me means you're on 24-7, that your cell phone is your life. And no, it's the work-life balance is definitely the right thing. Work-life integration is not the way to go. <laughs> and this is why I had to bring you on the show, because I may say or even believe generationally, when I was coming up through the rank and file, it was work, 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 and how dedicated, how agile you were to be able to respond 24-7. That's how we were rated, judged, and got our increases, our reviews, and our promotions. And it's so refreshing. You really cared to do something different. And again, those are the kind of people I keep company with because if we continue to follow the status quo, to your point, if you keep doing the same thing, you're going to get the same result. Don't we learn that that's just not working? People have spoken. People have needs. If you don't support the people in their whole life, <laughs> how can they ultimately perform sustainably, you know, sustainably in the environment that you've created? So, so appreciate that. Now. One of the things that I was really fascinated, not only have you created an environment where people can thrive and enjoy the things they love outside of work, as well as doing the purposeful work, but you have a unique view on organizational design. I think specifically around functional organizational design. To your point, you do things differently. I'd love for you to elaborate so we can learn from this. When I give lectures in business schools, I say that all businesses, doesn't matter profit, nonprofit, are it's very short, a process that produces more value than it costs. That's every single business in the world. And very often people concentrate on the value. What's that? Well, that's the price of my product. And ultimately that's dictated by your customer. If they don't think it's worth as much as you're asking for it, you don't have a business. The cost is easy. That's gap rules. That's general accounting principles. Everybody can keep an idea of what their costs are and everything. 
the part that usually gets forgotten is the process. And a business is a process that does these things. And you need a function or functions within the business to do that process. So when designing this corporation, it was, what are the functions you need in the case of life support and extreme environments of which most of our business is in space? What are the functions you need in order to get the product that's of value to the customer? So what I encourage people to do, and this is also for scalability reasons, you say all the functions you need, do not design it around people. So just because somebody is multifunctional, in my case, I had finance background, I had an engineering background and a few other things, you know, business background to some degree. Don't say, okay, then grant is this, and then put the org chart around grant is this. You put around what are the functions you need? Mine, you need engineering, you need quality control, you need program management, you need finance control, and then build a org chart on those functions. Before you start a company, it may be there's only one of you or two of you, but at least you have an idea of what the functions are. So then what we say is, okay, let's build these things called functional contracts around these boxes. You could do 200 if you want. I'm, I'm a little bit wary, depending on the size of your company, whether you need that many. But we do these things called functional contracts that say, okay, for doing this function for the company, here's the success criteria you have. Here's the responsibility a person doing this function would have. Here's the authority they have to do the responsible things, because you never want to give responsibility without the authority. And then here's the information you need from the other functions in the organization to do your job right. And so we do these things called functional contracts at Paragon. And oh, by the way, there's also a mission statement on there, which is not throwaway, but it's really kind of the sum of everything. But mission statements that are too condensed can very often be misinterpreted. So we put this on a, an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. If it's too small a type, you've probably combined too many functions. But the beauty of it is when you expand, then it's not a matter of figuring out a new position. What you do is you start dividing up the functions a little bit and saying, okay, this function is now we're bigger. So whereas we had a contracts group, now we need a subcontracts group versus a, you know, a prime contract group looking at it. So you can break those out a little bit more but it allows your organization to be expandable and scalable to wherever you want to be. Finally, as long as you wrap your review process into it, and I know that's somewhat of a dirty word now, but your, your employee reviews, what we call roles, expectations, and results is what we call it a paragon. You then can pretty much just take your responsibility and your success criteria right off the roles and respond right off and put it on your, what we call the RER form. And then you can say, this is what, we need to do, this is how you did the last three months or six months, depending on the review. And here's what is expected of the next three or six months. We have done reviews as much as quarterly and sometimes now we do it every half a year, but if it all flows together that way. So nobody really likes not knowing what the expectations of them are. You know, then you feel you're in moving goalposts. So you have it written down. You can just look at your responsibilities. And the other big thing is, when you have conflicts between organizations, so you have a conflict between a program group that wants certain authority or responsibilities or has certain responsibilities, and then an engineering organization that has certain functions, if there's conflicts, they should show up in these functional contracts. And then you can deconflict. So you get the people with their functional contracts in front of them and say, okay, where's the issue? Where's the overlap? Where is the gray area of responsibility or the gray area of authority? And 
it's a negotiating instrument. And so it allows the whole system or is supposed to, and I will say Paragon's not always been successful at these. We go through pluses and minuses and we expanded by 500% over the last three years. And so there was a little bit of trying to get people to understand this, but it's the good framework. And I know when I've presented this to business schools and stuff, they've said like, wow, this is actually a good way to think about it. And I think that's a little bit, again, of my unique upbringing. In fact, when somebody says they come in from a different organization and say, well, we didn't do it that way. We want to do it this way. I'll say, wait, stop, stop. Ask me why we do it this way. Because believe me, we've tried other things and I've been in other organizations and it's what's something that makes us unique. It makes us differentiate us among many things in our industry. So it's very important to us. What I'm feeling from this is that it changes the conversation when it comes to the iterative review process. It's about what is the function, as you said, roles and responsibilities. And when there is a gap, <laughs> we don't put it on the human, we'll work harder, but it's more about what was the breakdown? What do you need to be successful? Let's look at the interactions you have. What frustrates you? Why aren't you getting what you need to be successful? And it's more of a constructive conversation about how can I help you versus judging at a static point in time, did you or did you not achieve the results? So I really love that. It's humanizes the review process. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll admit I learned many things in the corporate world and some of them what not to do. Reviews was kind of one of those. I mean, if you belong to a big company, reviews are usually very reluctantly given. There's a fair amount of grousing by the managers that they, quote, have to do it. And they can be a very negative thing. And, and I think when I started this out, I said that reviews is a little bit of a dirty word. And I've seen all sorts of different things coming out of different places about we don't do reviews and we don't do this. Well, my philosophy was you want to touch your employees multiple times. And it's not just wait for your review. But what I found was an annual review, they would sometimes wait. 11 months after they saw something that they didn't like, they say, hey, you did this wrong. It's like, wait, you waited 11 months to tell me this? I could have corrected it, you know, 10 months ago. So having a more frequent, but also seeing a review as a chance to help the employee be successful and to be successful as an organization and for the managers to convey clearly what's going on and how they're perceived and correct misperceptions, by the way. That's another part of a review. It is a two-way street. On our reviews, we ask, what's your long-term goals? And I found that very often my employees would only put goals that had something to do with Paragon. I said, no, no, I want to know your life goals. Do you want to retire early? You know, you want to become a real estate mogul? I mean, the one I've seen multiple times is they want to be an astronaut. And the reason we do that, I say, look, you know, I've been in the business 30 years. The people around you have cumulative thousands of years of, of experience in the case of how big we are now. By putting these out there, you never know what you could be helped on. You don't know what you need until you ask to some degree. And I, I have written recommendations for my employees to be astronauts. Unfortunately, none of them made it yet, which is kind of sad to me. But my philosophy is I'd rather have a happy employee astronaut than an employee that has a regret for not going for the brass ring or something like that. I've had one say, I want your position. I want to be the CEO of the company. And I said, okay, great. Let's work on that. Do you want to set up a mentorship thing? Or do you want to you know, read my functional contract and see what if you understand the things online when it says you're responsible for P&L, responsible for balance sheet items. Do you know that? So 
or by the way, our functional contracts are on our intranet. You can go down and pull anybody's functional contract down. So if you're in the contract world, you say, gee, I'd like to go over to marketing. You can pull down the marketing functional contract and read it and say, what does this require? So it's not just about, can you do better at this job that we need you to do this function? But it's also opening up the possibilities endlessly. There's possibilities within the company, but there's possibilities outside of the company. I used to have on mine, by the way, one of my life goals was to manage the Cubs to their first World Series in a century. And then, of course, that happened a few years ago. So I, I took that one off. But it's not being flippant about it. It's a little bit of, you know, what are your dreams? And we get various reactions. Some people say, well, I'm, I'm not going to share my innermost dreams. But I found that what Neiman Marcus said, and this was something that Chuck Banfi told me, Captain Banfi told me, was Neiman Marcus has had a saying that never underestimate the value of luck, but luck only comes to those people that are looking for it. And so by putting down your own goals and aspirations, that's where the luck happens. Nobody's going to be able to read your mind. And so create your luck is another way maybe of looking at it. Well, so beautifully said. And again, I've been put out some lofty goals out there of what I want. And I think the more that I share with the world what I see, the purposeful work that I want to do, who I serve, the stage that I want to be on with bright lights, and I'm not necessarily saying it has to be thousands of people. Even just this podcast is a stage for which I have bright lights and I am speaking to an audience. The more I put out there, you are right. Things start showing up that pave the way. So, so important. Now, I want to switch this a little bit for another topic as you really care about the future leaders, as you have said, and you say that you coach and mentor either new leaders or entrepreneurs. And I'm curious about the next generation, what are the trends that you're seeing in how they behave or what are they thinking and how have you coached and guide them <laughs> to focus that energy and that aspiration? And that's not only, you know, people that are at the level of starting business and stuff, but I love talking to middle schoolers and high schoolers. And in fact, Paragon has an active intern program with a local high school where we have four different ones that come in and they kind of get to shadow people. And one of the things is sitting down with me talking about life in general and how do you set goals? And I have a something I've thought of over a long time. There's really three things, what you want to do, what you can do, and what you can make a living doing. And it's interesting sitting down with younger people. This is the same thing I do with businesses, but in the life world, you'll notice I said, make a living doing. I don't say make money doing. I've known a lot of happy people that make $40,000 a year. I've known a lot of miserable people who make $300,000 a year. I, I can tell you, I know a few billionaires with Paragon help Elon start SpaceX. So I met Elon when he had his PayPal money, but before he started SpaceX, multiple other ones, Tito and a few others, the first gentleman to buy a trip to the, be a tourist in space and stuff. But anyway, there's three things. There's really what you want to do. And that's really going out and exploring and figuring out what you want to do. There's what you can do, and that's my teachers love this when I say, this is why you stay in school. You're expanding that circle of what you can do so it overlaps with what you want to do. And if you don't actively try to expand what you can do, those won't overlap and that'll be a problem. Making a living doing is what makes you happy. What, yes, it might put food on the table and everything else, but as you know, there's poor musicians and, you know, and everything else that, that still do what they do. You can find a way. In the business world, and this is how I explain it when I'm coaching and mentoring young CEOs, there's what you want to do, which is really your mission and vision statement. That's why you started the company. 
There is what you can do, which is whether it's a product or a service or whatever else, and how can you expand that? In the case of my world of engineering, it's how much do you put into IR&D and where do you put IR&D to expand what you can do? And you sure hope that's overlapping what you want to do. And in fact, one of the biggest problems I have with new entrepreneurs is what I call lack of focus or, or the squirrel problem. The shiny object comes along, the one that's going to maybe pay the bills, and they go for that. And suddenly they're doing something they never even started the company to do. So keep going back to what you want to do. And then, of course, in business, it's make money doing even in a nonprofit. You have to have enough money to keep the doors open. It's maybe not a profit, but it's all about getting paid for your services and what you do and making sure you understand the dynamic between those three things. And very often in my mentoring, somebody will say, hey, well, we got this great idea to go do this. And such such this big, important company came and said, hey, we'll pay you to do this. And I'll say, wait, stop there. That's not the vision you told me. Why would you do that? Well, it's it's money, you know, and it's like, well, watch out. That's a slippery slope. Ultimately, everything you do, you have to justify in your mission and your vision of the company, or you've started another company. So in the case of Paragon, we'll patent some things that we discover in our way, but then we'll look at the patent and say, that's not really our core business. It's not what we want to do. And we'll license it out or whatever, or just abandon the patent. Hopefully we haven't gone for the patent. We have a whole quarterly thing where we look at what's coming out of our labs and say, should we patent it and why and everything else. Anyway, so those three things are important. And I've had some of my mentees just say, you know, I totally revamped and how I thought about my business because you you said this to me. And, and they started looking at their vision statement. And is that really what they want to do? Why did they start the company in the first place? And then they look at their personal one, because sometimes people start companies because of their personal, as well as the business vision, right? They want to be independent. They don't want to speak to corporate bosses or whatever else. And so that's a personal part of the what I want to do. And then that manifests itself into the business, one of the reasons they're doing the business. But it's an interesting dynamic. It's always fraught with fooling yourself to some degree. I've, I've found many people who say, oh, I really want to do this. And in reality, when you start asking questions, it's no, it was something that somebody offered to pay you to do, but it totally redirected what you really set out to do. But having clarity on what you set out to do helps you focus. And I think one of the biggest mistakes I see on new entrepreneurs make is not staying focused. So on that note, I will have to echo everything you say. I also coach some people. I sometimes need to pause and look at the things in front of me to say, does that serve me? And even if I do something short term, I'll recognize when it's not sustainable. I did take some contract work. It did pay the bills. But at my heart, it was not that work that I love to do. I couldn't bring my creative energy as well as impact people and leave a legacy. I am now in some of those roles. And while I wasn't always making enough money, I showed up with joy and satisfaction, acknowledgement. And I truly believe, and maybe I drank the Kool-Aid, I'm still drinking that Kool-Aid, believing that if you stay focused, those things will come as you let the world know, this is what I want to do. Same thing with speaking. I want to speak. I guess you can tell I like to talk a lot, but being able to also share my insights for a greater audience. The more I poke around there, people are starting to say, Deb, we're going to look you up when we get that conference going. So you have to show up, but just stay focused. It's so easy to get distracted. Okay to explore and discover, 
but come back and focus. Grant, I love this conversation. So impactful for C-suite leaders, the leaders of tomorrow. I want to bring it to a close. Any last closing thoughts that you want to leave for our audience? Yeah, I would say the thing to concentrate on, especially we've been expanding lately, and I've made some of my mistakes, is making sure that when you grow, that you spend a lot of time investing the other leaders in what I've been describing is all about. And I've had new employees come in, interestingly, from my competitors. I find out they're trying to make me like my competitor was. It's rather, it's kind of a standard joke of you left that company because you didn't like it, but now you're trying to impose it on this one. Take time to find out when you join a new company or something else, not everybody starts their own and that's fine. Find out why they are, a little bit of what I was talking about. What is they really want to do? You know, a little bit of what they can do and what they do differently. I think very often people make innovations in business and then they get pulled back to the norm as they grow. What they teach in business school, the, oh, you should look at this and you should look at that. Don't be arrogant. There are certain things that are time and tested, but don't be scared to put your own spin on it and then hold on to that spin, especially when it's proven to work. And in the scalability thing, don't lose that. And it's interesting watching companies evolve and fail or or stumble. And there are unfortunately little more examples of that now right nowadays. When things get rough, people stumble. Be thinking about what I said. And I think you'll notice, ah, I think I see what they did. It'll give you better insight, I think, in reading the business news. Such a great interview. I am so grateful that I found you and you found it worth your time to share all these amazing insights with my audience as well as yours. I want to wish you continued success in building the company that is different and in service to the future leaders. Thank you so much for being just a great guest, Grant. Thank you very much, Deb. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. My new book, The CEO's Compass, will change the way you think about leadership, navigate rapid transformation, and elevate the leaders of tomorrow. If you're feeling off track, the CEO's Compass Assessment will guide you to peace of mind in days, not months. You can learn more about the CEO's Compass by visiting my website at dropinceo.com. Now go out and lead, inspire, and achieve your goals.